It's Daily Thunder, the truth of Jesus Christ dished out live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado with a bit of manly grit and gusto. Find out more at live.ellerslie.com. Now here's Eric Lutie. All right, guys, we're going to get started. It's our Wednesday edition of Daily Thunder, and uh, it's beautiful out in Colorado, isn't it? For those of you that uh, know Colorado weather in the past uh, week, we had snowstorms last week in late May, and uh, we're still trying to recover from that psychologically. But uh, today feels more like Colorado spring, and so we're soaking it up. Uh, Why don't we just start with prayer? Father, we just submit this time to you and just ask that you would receive glory in and through it. I just pray that your Holy Spirit would lead and that those that are uh, listening to this uh, right now, whether it's in person, whether it's uh, uh, via the stream, or whether it's in the future in, in the podcast, Lord, I just pray that you would speak straight to their soul, that you would prepare them to understand and to grip these truths. Lord, that our lives would be enriched, that we would be edified, that we would live out Christianity and not just think high thoughts about it. Lord, we submit to you in this for your glory, honor, and praise. Amen. So one of the things Nathan and I talked about uh, yesterday is the idea of in our podcast actually having numbers in front of the podcast episodes so you sort of see how far we've gone so we can celebrate different levels. And I I was starting to count, and then Leslie had an important question for me today, but I want to say this could be the 30th episode, which is a pretty grand time. And Jesus started his ministry at the age of 30, so this could be like a new launch uh, forward of strength in, uh, in the Daily Thunder uh, podcast or broadcast. So it's a pretty exciting day, and so I'm celebrating inside, and so I just invite all of you to celebrate with me. Of course, it might not be the 30th. <laughs> I never did finish counting, but just in case it is, I'm celebrating, all right? Does that sound fair? Uh, so this is the glossary of the gospel series, I'm going through this on Mondays and Wednesdays, and uh, basically what it is, for those of you that are not familiar with it, is we are laying out the foundations for a new believer. If a new believer was coming into the kingdom of heaven, what are the basics that you want to impart to them in their discipleship? And because discipleship is so lost today, this is also a beneficial tool for those that are older believers so that they can not only be reminded in the basics, which is tremendously important and valuable in the Christian life, but also so that they could be skilled and have a a deeper understanding of how to walk someone through uh, the discipleship process as well. Uh, So this one is called the second. Uh, For those of you that uh, have been through Ellerslie, the ideas of first and seconds are very uh, clearly understood. We go through it at a deep level, and it's part of how we rightly divide the scriptures. Uh, There's a lot of key themes in scripture that really help globally when you're understanding basic discipleship. You need to know how to tie the entire Bible together to recognize that it's saying one thing. It is speaking about a man who is God with us, who is going to come to this earth. He'll be born uh, of a woman in the town of Bethlehem, There's a very specific uh, description of this man, of what he will do, how he will live, and even how he will die. And this man will die on a cross, and that one work will be the redemption of men. And so to understand the Bible, and there's various themes, like we could say the theme of the kingdom, the theme of redemption, uh, there's the theme of covenants, 
there's the theme of like a seed, the seed of the woman, uh, and then the lineage and the genealogies of Adam unto uh, a very specific line through the line of David and the kingly line unto Jesus. All of these things are very significant global themes, and one of them, if you notice, your Bible is just divided in two parts. You have an Old Testament and a New Testament. There's two. And so this idea of twos, or first and seconds, old and new, is very, very significant in the terrain of understanding the Christian life. And the second is the one that God always seems to hallmark. He shines a light on it. And the first is important. It's, it's sort of understood as a schoolmaster. It's a tutor, but in and of itself it cannot save. It cannot satisfy God. And so there's all sorts of illustrations of this in Scripture, but it's the second that satisfies. It's the second that completes. It's the second that does what God needs. And so Jesus is understood as the second. Uh, when, you, when you understand the, the, uh, the heritage, the, the, the genealogy of men that all come from Adam, you have Adam, and every one of us comes from Adam, and then suddenly one man comes who is not born of a human father. He is born of a heavenly father. And he begins, in a sense, a new line. And anyone that would forsake the old line and put it off and believe in Jesus Christ actually has a new descendancy. And they are grafted in to a new genealogy. And as a result, have a different end and destiny than the destiny of Adam. So the second. Sorry, guys, I don't have my clicker on. That's a, a very, very important thing here. So review, on Monday we dealt with something known as the body, and it is actually what it sounds like, a body, and you think of a human body and you're, you're accurate. The human body is very, very significant, but not just our individual body. There is something that God is using and, and describing in and through Scripture, and that is a, a body that is the example body, and that's Jesus' body when he was here on earth. But then when we believe in Jesus, it's like we're grafted in and we begin to function just as his body functioned. It's a carrying device of what we described on Monday as the glory of God. God desires to be seen. And so I use the illustration of this curtain behind me, and then there's this beautiful scene out there. And imagine, you know, we used to, if you've seen videos of, of Ellerslie, this curtain was always closed. There's this gorgeous thing out there, but it's like the glory is shrouded. The glory is veiled. There's this beautiful lake, beautiful green, you know, you have trees out there, you have a deer, you have swan, you have geese, all these wonderful things, but you can't see it because we have this crazy curtain there. That's exactly like God's creation. There is a curtain that separates this realm from seeing his majesty, his glory, the full weight of who he is. And so what the Holy Spirit is working to do is to pull back the curtain that we would see, that this world would behold who he is in fullness, in full weight and glory. So what is his key tool, his key vehicle through which to accomplish that. It's a body. The body of Christ fully revealed that glory. And then he says, and I want your body. He purchased our bodies at the cross through his blood. And so these bodies are his chosen vehicle. And that's what I said here, the chosen vehicle through which God reveals his glory. So that is very, very important in understanding how Christianity plays out. Because when we say second or first and second, there are are two dimensions of how your body works. There's a first way that you can use your body and there's a second way you can use your body. 
And the first way you use your body cannot please God. But the second way can, that you can actually please God in the way you utilize this body. It's an amazing thought. So the second, remember that's the name of this message, so it bears repeating as we go into this little uh, segment here. I, I really enjoy this. Uh, as, as we talk about rightly dividing Scripture, just handling Scripture the way God sort of maps it out, which to do that you have to understand the whole and you have to understand his language and what he is saying. And so God does everything on purpose. And so there's certain things, like when you read them in the Bible, it's like, why did he include that story? Every story matters in the Bible, every single one. And so there's all these uh, epic stories, and then God will take his camera, and he will zoom in on the most minuscule things that take place, and yet every single one of them matters. And so if God ever takes his camera and zooms in, you zoom in with him. You listen very closely to what he's saying. He's showing us, like I, I remember one of my favorite illustrations of this is, you have uh, the prophet Elisha who followed in the steps of Elijah and is, I mean, Elijah is usually considered the chief prophet, okay, of the Old Testament. I mean, he's just, he's quite the character, right? But the guy that followed him asked for a double blessing, a double portion of the spirit that he had. And God gave it to him. So what Elisha did was quite extraordinary. And so Elisha's doing amazing things, just huge things. And then the camera zooms in. And there's this obscure story of these prophets that are building a house, like a, a, a prophet house. And this one guy has a borrowed axe head. Okay, he has a, a borrowed axe, I should say. And, I mean, the story is so minuscule and seemingly unimportant that you could easily just yawn and say, why are we even lo looking at this? But this guy is, you know, hacking away with his axe, and what happens with the axe head? It goes flying and lands in the Jordan River. And, I mean, up to this point, you have to still say, okay, so what? Did it hit someone in the head? No, it just went into the river and sank, like a good axe head should. And God seems to want us to see this story. And the guy, we even know what he says in response to losing his axe head. He says, alas, master, my axe head, it was borrowed. And we're still, all of us are like leaning in going, so? Who cares? There's a lot of grand stories out there, and the Bible only speaks that which is most important to speak, but it's talking about this guy who borrows an axe and loses an axe head in the river. And it's borrowed. I mean, this is a sad story. Okay, yeah, the poor guy borrowed an axe head, and now, you know, he's going to have to somehow tell the guy that he borrowed it from, I'm so sorry, but I lost your axe head. All right, now, I don't know how mournful this is to you, but to me, it's just like, get over it, buddy. Just go and save up some money and buy a new axe head. Instead, God seems to zoom in and say, watch. Elisha the prophet seems to care about an axe head that, that this prophet, who we don't even know his name, borrowed. And Elisha throws a branch into the river, or like a tree if you want to look at it. It's, it's a picture, in, if we can think in our understanding of Christ, it's the solution to everything big and small. It's a tree. It's what Christ has done for us. And he throws it into the Jordan River and an axe head floats. That's a, it is an unusual story. At the same time, it's minuscule. But God wants us to see it because the next story is one of the most epic stories in the entire Bible and it's like right after that. This entire Syrian army surrounds the same prophet and that prophet sort of shrugs as he's sipping his morning coffee. And his, his servant is like, alas, master. They both say it, alas, master. It's like a direct parallel between the stories. 
And Elisha is totally unmoved. And he says, open my servant's eyes. And he sees that the mountains are full of horses and chariots of fire. And then in one word, Elisha blinds the entire army of Syrians. So God zooms in and shows this teeny little dinky story of an axe head that goes into the Jordan River and then goes boom and zooms out and shows that entire, the most powerful armies in the world are immediately halted in their steps by the same God who cares about an axe head. Does that matter? Of course it does. And what does God teach us through this? If you are willing to listen, he's teaching you that whether it's small or big, he is the solution. And when you begin to understand that in the terrain of scripture, it brings you into the intimate confines of what God is desiring us to understand. So in this idea of first and seconds, all of these stories may seem at first obscure. It's like, okay, why are we learning about this? Why does this matter? Everything in the Bible is useful for our development as Christians, everything. And so to be able to rightly divide the scriptures, we need to understand this, that God is creating a division between first and second. And he always shows that the first cannot please him. The second one is that which is born of the Spirit. This is what pleases him. So even though at first it seems like an axe head type of story, like why does this matter? It matters, and if you listen closely, it teaches you the kingdom of heaven. So I'll give you some examples. So you have Adam. The first man is known as Adam. But then in the New Testament, Paul explains that Jesus is the second man. There were 77 generations between Adam and Jesus. What do you mean he's the second man? But that's how he's described in Scripture very purposely to say there's a first and there's a second. The first man is of the earth. He's earthy. He behaves like the earth. But the second man is the Lord who comes down from heaven and he behaves like heaven. So if you stay in the first, if you believe in the first, if you put your trust in the first, you die like the first. You go the way of the earth. But if you will put your confidence in the second, you'll behave as the second and you will go where the second goes. You see, this is the most crucial crux point of understanding. This is the gospel baked into first, second. Cain, Abel. Now, if you think through the book of Genesis, you come to the conclusion that it's very likely that Adam and Eve were fruitful, and they multiplied, and they had more than three kids, okay? Because that's what we know. They had Cain and Abel, and then uh, Abel gets killed, and then there's Seth, Right? However, there's like these other communities out there. <laughs> there's all sorts of stuff going on. What is all that? So we're having to presume that Adam and Eve were fruitful, all right? And they multiplied. However, God zooms in and he says there's two sons. You see, the two is what matters to us. First, second. Cain is first. Abel, second. They both bring an offering. Isn't that interesting? And have you ever felt bad for Cain? The poor guy. His offering is just like, no, I don't like that. And the second one, Abel, God receives it. God is teaching us something right from the very beginning. The first cannot please God. The second is that which pleases God. Now, he's setting us up to understand something, which we will get into as we progress. Ishmael, Isaac. So then you have Abraham, called apart, separated out by God, and he is promised to have a child. However, Abraham is a little 
impatient with this process, just like we often are. God gives us promise in our life, and we have a tendency to jump ahead and try and make it happen our way, which is in Ishmael. Ishmael is a classic picture of that, right? And God rejects Ishmael. The first cannot please God. It's the second one, Isaac, which is born of promise that is in the lineage of the seed of Jesus Christ. Hagar, Sarah. Hagar is a picture of self's attempt at something. It cannot please God. It is not received by God. And then you have Sarah, which is proven to be the vehicle, the vessel through which God's ability is performed. Esau, Jacob. So then Rebekah, the wife of Isaac, has, she's pregnant with twins in her womb, and they're at war with each other. And I don't know what that would be like. I've never been pregnant. And so I could just imagine, but God seems to zoom in again, and he gives us details about what's going on inside of her womb. Isn't that just interesting? I mean, there will be decades that will pass in Scripture and nothing will be mentioned, and then we'll zoom in the camera on a womb and two kids fighting inside of it. In other words, God wants us to know that. And so, in fact, it's so perplexing to uh, Rebecca that she asks God, why am I like this? Why is this going on? And God answers. God seems to actually want her to ask that question. And he says, there's two nations in your womb, two manner of people. You see, and then he actually says, the older, or the first, will serve the younger. The older, the first, will serve the second. There's two nations. In fact, the descendants of the first, Esau, are what are called the Amalekites. They're called the first kingdom. The descendants of the second one, well, his name is Jacob, but he becomes Israel. It's the kingdom of heaven. This is the lineage of the king of all kings. The first kingdom of this earth, earthy. The second one, and which one's going to rule? It's ultimately the second, but at first, the first one is hairy. He's a hunter. He's strong. The second one looks weak at first. I mean, you know, and I think you guys have heard me describe it this way. It's one of the most uncomfortable descriptions in the entire Bible, and that's the description of Jacob when he's young. He was a plain man dwelling in tents. That is the most horrific description of a man I have ever heard. So if you were to ask me, Eric, what sort of man do you want to be like? Do you want to be like Esau? He was a hairy hunter. Of course, the first question most of us ask is, how hairy? It's like, well, before I choose Esau, how hairy? Well, hairy, hairy. <laughs> so hairy that Isaac literally puts, what was it, goat skin on him? No, Isaac. Jacob wears goat skin to con his dad Isaac, who was blind, uh, to, to think he's Esau. Goat skin? It's like, this is hairy, hairy. So you have to weigh that. But you have the hairy hunter, or all of us guys, we can choose to be the plain man dwelling in tents, knitting all day. I mean, that's the mental picture I have. It's like, come on, buddy, be a man. Okay, so this is a tough one. But Esau, Jacob, the first cannot please God. He's rejected. The second one is the one that God has favor upon. Leah, Rachel. Do you remember the story of Jacob? So Jacob flees Esau, right? And he goes to this other land and you know, he has descendants there and, or, or relatives there. And he falls in love with Rachel. Again, his favor is upon the second. And of course, there's a con job by Laban, his father-in-law. And he ends up getting stuck with the first, Leah, the firstborn of the girls. And he's not too pleased with that. Do you see that story? He's not pleased with the first. The first cannot satisfy Jacob. 
In other words, as much as many of us feel for Leah in the story, <laughs> because it's like, hey, the poor lady. I mean, it wasn't her fault. There's still a picture that God wants us to see. The first cannot satisfy. It's the second one that is beloved, that is desired. See, this is the principle of rightly dividing Scripture. Manasseh Ephraim, now we have the sons of Joseph after uh, quite a few uh, generations. And the firstborn of Joseph's sons is Manasseh, and the second is Ephraim. And now I'm going to go into that. I actually have a scripture reference for this. But when Jacob comes in to bless them, he actually, Joseph figures that he sticks the firstborn at Jacob's right hand because that's the blessing hand. And he sticks Manasseh purposely at Jacob's left hand. Jacob purposely switches hands and takes his right hand and sticks it on the second. I'll read that scripture for you in a bit. Moses, Joshua. You see, now, just because it's a first doesn't mean it's a negative. It just means it cannot satisfy. Moses is symbolic of the law. In fact, that's what most people throughout all of history would even call Moses. He's the Mosaic law. Now, what's interesting is Moses desires to go into the promised land, but God prohibits him from going into the promised land. Why? Well, it's because he's, he re he's representative of a first, and it's only the second. Who follows Moses? Joshua. You know, it's the same name as Jesus, and it's Jesus that takes us into the land of promise. Adam can't. The law can't. It's the second. It's grace. It's the Holy Spirit. It is the life of God Almighty, not anything man can do. And so it's an amazing picture. We have a first and a second. Now, Israel craves a king. Well, they get what they crave. They want to be like other nations, so they become like other nations, and they get a king. His name is Saul. God rejects Saul. First king of Israel, rejected, even though he was very impressive. He was head and shoulders above all Israel, which means he was a giant in the land of Israel. God rejects him. But the second is a man after his own heart. Isn't that amazing? First, second, all throughout Scripture. Old covenant, new covenant. The old covenant is a beautiful covenant. There's nothing wrong with it. However, it does not bring salvation in and of itself. It only reveals to you, it's a tutor to your soul to say, you need a Savior. You need a Messiah. And so though the old covenant is not evil in and of itself, it's a beautiful promise from God. It's a beautiful communication from God. God has given us his word. However, he also in that word is saying, and I will give you something better. I will give you something that will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. It is a Messiah. And in the, in the, in, there's a new covenant that is made in his blood that does save. Think about this. John the Baptist, Jesus. John the Baptist is an amazing man, but he's a forerunner. He is a friend of the bridegroom. He is one who goes before calling in the wilderness saying, repent for the one that is greater follows. You see, the first one can't save. John can't save, but he can show you who can. It is the one that he points to, the one that he communicates about that does the saving. Flesh, spirit. So when Paul the apostle in the New Testament is attempting to communicate and rightly divide the scriptures so that we are understanding of what Christ has accomplished for us, he draws this separation between a first and a second. And he calls the first flesh and the second spirit. And he says, if we live after the flesh, we die. We are functioning in Adam, 
not in Christ. But if we forsake the first way of living and we believe in Christ Jesus and allow the Holy Spirit to work within us, then we are working after the second. And that's what pleases God. So, as Paul says in the book of Galatians, if you start in the Spirit, don't go back to living this way. Don't go back to trying to do it in your own strength. You've been set free to actually learn to function and to live in the second, in Christ Jesus. Law, grace. It's the same division. The law can only show you your need of a Savior. Grace gives you salvation. It is God working on your behalf to do and to accomplish what the law can only show you you need to do. And so as a result, first, second. The first cannot please God. It cannot save But oftentimes it is used by God to reveal our need for the second. But when you find the second, don't go back to the first. When you find the second, the first was only there as a shadow, to cast a shadow, to point like a road sign to it. If a road sign, if you're trying to get to Windsor and you see a road sign down the road that says Windsor 10 miles, don't go back to the road sign and just stare at it and hang at it and hug it. Go to Windsor. In other words, the road sign is only there to point you in the right direction. But once you get there... You don't go back to the roadside and build a little memorial there and, you know, just make that your kingdom. There is something greater. It is the real thing. So here's that story I was telling you about where we have Joseph's sons, his two sons. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim, with his right hand towards Israel's left hand. So Israel is Jacob, the father of Joseph. And Manasseh with his left hand towards Israel's right hand and brought them near him. So he's very purposely setting this up. He's very purposely saying, okay, uh, Manasseh, you're going to be over here right at my father's right hand. Oh, and and Ephraim, you're going to be over here on the left hand. Then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head who was the younger and his left hand on Manasseh's head guiding his hands knowingly. Isn't that just an interesting way of saying it? He is doing this on purpose. And if there's anyone who understands the second, guess who it would be? Jacob. Jacob was in quite a few of those little stories I just shared on first and seconds. It was, he was the second born, and God made it very clear uh, the significance of, of the fact that the, the younger will actually rule over the older. Remember, that was the promise to his mother, And since he was a plain man dwelling in tents, he hung out with his mother quite a bit. So I have a hunch he knew that promise. Does that make sense? And then when he goes to Laban, guess what? He gets stuck with a a first, and he's not too pleased with a first. It's the second wife that pleases him. And so what you see is this is like the language of Jacob's life. And so now the two are set in front of him. He takes knowingly his right hand of blessing and plops it on Manasseh's head, I'm sorry, on Ephraim's head, the second, the younger. So now when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. It goes directly against the way we are wired in this world. We esteem the first, always. We always will naturally esteem an Esau over a Jacob. Jacob looks weak. You don't go to the second, you go with the hairy hunter. You choose a Saul who is head and shoulders above all. You don't choose an eighth son of Jesse, a little shrimpy shepherd boy. No, you don't do that. That is irrational, illogical. That is inappropriate. And so what you see is it displeased him. 
So he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. This is a great line, guys. But his father refused and said, I know, my son. I know. Oh, that's a great moment. That's a movie moment right there. So one of you that's writing a movie script, that's a good moment right there. I know, my son. It's, it's how you say it, because you could write a great script and the actor could blow it, okay? So it's all in how, it's, how the line is played out. I know, my son. I know. See? Did you guys feel that? It's a moment. So in the Old Testament, we have a statement about what the entire Old Testament is. I mean, basically right here. So in the Old Covenant, you have the lineage, the genealogy of one known as Adam. And this is what Adam can produce. God gives Adam's race a law. How you doing, guys? They are floundering. They cannot keep it. It's called the, the, the cyclical pattern of apostasy. That's the only, God comes in, saves them, awakens them, stirs them afresh, gives them someone who fears them to bring back order again, and they go right down the toilet again. They have no capacity in themselves to live righteous, to please God. So they need sacrifice to cover over and to atone for their sin. You see, this is a mess. It's known as the lineage or the genealogy of Adam. The descendants of Adam, and guess what? Every single one of us in this room is of that descent. It's called our firstborn life. So this is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. So that's the description. I mean, a pretty good summary of the Old Testament right there. This is them. Yeah, they, he was, they were created in the image of God, but boy, did something go bad. Yeah, it all went upside down and fast. Okay, now look at the results. However, in the midst of it is covenant, is promise. God is revealing himself because he has a second in mind. He does not want to leave them in this first condition. He wants to give them something better because he loves them. Look at the very beginning of the New Testament. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Oh, that sounds like a contrast, doesn't it? First, second. Which book are you in? It's called the book of life. It's actually not just a book, even though it could be. I mean, maybe there is going to be a big, fat book. When I was growing up, I used to think of this big, huge, fat book, and you'd open it. It was perfect bound on the side. That's like where the glue is on the side, which they didn't have back then, right? But it was the book of life, and you just sort of flop it open, and there's like the name Eric Ludi, and it could be blotted out. I was like, oh, no. And so it was like very, this fearful book, right? But it's a living book. I liken it to Jesus Christ, the Word of God. And unless your name is written in that book, in that man, you have no life. How do you get it? So say it is a book. Say it's printed out. You know, there's a printing press. It's always redoing itself. It's like, oh, we need to do a new edition. Someone just, you know, repented and believed. It's like, okay, reprint the thing. I don't know how this book works. I know how Christ works. And even if it is a book, the only way to get your name in it is by faith in the second. And when you believe in the second, you're grafted in to that living book. You are brought in. You are written on his heart. <clears throat> yeah, 
If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God, in true righteousness and holiness. Nathan is going through the book of Ephesians, and the book of Ephesians is about position. Position in Christ is the first three chapters is this is what you have in Christ and this is now how it affects every aspect of your life. And that's the last three chapters, four through six. So there's this concept in it that is brought out in Ephesians that is basically saying, hey guys, the key to Christianity is that you are in Adam, you are in that book. That book has judgment written all over it. It's, it's, it's a book that has to be solved. There has to be a, the the key to it, to unlock it, because you're stuck in the wrong book. And there is one who has broken the seals that has made a way. And if you put off that old, the first, and put on the second, you live. That's exactly what it says right here. Put off the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Jesus answered and said to him, this is Jesus speaking, uh, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you are born twice. Isn't that a strange statement? It's like, how can a man be born twice? Who does that sound like? That sounds like Nicodemus, doesn't it? Unless a man can be born twice, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So the key is, you can't just be born in Adam. You can't just be of that genealogy and be fine. There needs to be a new birth. So how does that happen? You must repent and believe. When you turn from your old life, when you forsake your old life, when you say, I no longer desire to have that. I want to get rid of my first. I trust the second. You have life. Right there. It's actually not supposed to be complicated. We have a tendency to make it complicated. It's believing. It's trusting him. And in so doing, you are brought into the book of life. Review. So on Monday, we talked about the tripartite being, which is three parts. Tri means three. Part means parts. So it's three parts. The ite on the end just makes it sound intelligent. The tripartite being, the three-part being. That's our human body. We have three dimensions to who we are, just like the Old Testament temple had an outer court, had an inner court where the priest, the consecrated priest could come and then they had a holy of holies. And they had three parts. The same is true with us. So you see, see those three blocks? This is the first man. This is the one that is in Adam. It's called the body of death. It can only produce sins. It cannot produce righteousness. Any of its righteous d- uh, attempts are still filthy rags to God. This life, this first, cannot please God. It's like Cain's offering. It's like Ishmael standing before him. It's like Esau. It cannot please God. So this life must be repented of. It must be put off. So what you see is there's a, there's a head position in itself. There's its problem right there. You see, it used to be God was in that position. God was in control of the life, but when Adam and Eve rebelled, when they disobeyed, what happened is there was a renovation. God left, and now we need to fill in some vacancies it's like the owner of a business just walking out and suddenly says, well, who's in charge then? Well, who's ever, whoever is strongest. And in the, in the life 
uh, of the human body, we think we're really strong. However, the moment you lose God is the moment someone stronger than you moves in. And it's called the flesh. It's your appetites that actually rule you. And so you come under the kingdom of darkness. You're powerless to do heavenly things. And you're now ruled by something other than God. But it's not you. You're responsible. See you up there? Yep, there you are. Who's guilty? You. Who's going to be judged? You. And yet you're like in this seat of authority, and yet you have no power over this life. It's like, ah, no, I want to I wanna be pure. I want to love some people. I, wa- I want to I wanna have joy. I wa-. You can't. You see, you're not in charge of the operation. So these machines are being run by someone else and producing some bad fruit out there. I don't want that bad fruit. I want to produce good fruit. You can't just produce good fruit out of willpower. You can desire to be pure, to be righteous, to be holy. Good luck. You have no capacity in that. That body is called the body of death. It produces bad fruit. Okay, so what you see is the flesh. The firstborn is in control, and it cannot please God. It is producing the fruit of the flesh, which is all sorts of bad stuff, by the way, if you study it in Scripture. The soul, which is you, it's like your mind, will, and emotions. You're enslaved. What you desire to do, you can't do. There's nothing in you. You dig down into that lower chamber to say, hey, is there anything in here? The Spirit of God is not there. The only thing that could help you is not in your body. And so therefore, there's nothing to overcome that flesh. So you may want to, in your soul, knock that flesh out of the high position. You can't do it. Because when you dig down into that other dimension and say, spirit, spirit, hey, hey, what? There's nothing there. There's no power to draw from. Oh, who can save us from this body of death, says Paul at the end of Romans 7. You know what his next statement is? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Boom! That just changed. It looks very similar, but it's, it's completely new life. Okay? What happens when someone believes? Christ moves into the head position. Self is dethroned. One of the key operations of the Christian life, and if you haven't done this, it's very important because otherwise you'll continue to live in the first life. You must step off that seat and allow God to have it. I'm not in control of this life anymore. It's not me that is king here. It is you. I give my body to you to rule as you see fit. And what happens? Now the spirit comes in. You have all that you need in your pockets now from God. He's like stocking you full to say, oh, you need, need grace? I got that for you. So now the soul, mind, will, emotions, this is you, actually is free to serve Christ via the Holy Spirit. Now, your appetites are still there. You still have a desire for food. You still have a desire for sleep. You still have uh, sensual desires. They're still there. However, they're ruled now. You have now power to use those to the glory of God. Did you know that all those appetites can be used for the glory of God? They're not evil in and of themselves. It's when the flesh uses them that he destroys our life. So those appetites are now consecrated appetites. So actually, you can have relationship with the opposite sex in a way that is beautiful and God-honoring. You can eat food. Paul even says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. That means you can eat and drink to the glory of God. You see, this body is not evil. This body is taken hostage. But when it is set free, it can now be used the way God intended it. When he created this body the way he did, with all of its idiosyncrasies and oddities, which many of us have thought through, it's like, why did God do that? He did it on purpose to reveal himself. You see, he wants to use our appetites, but he wants them underneath 
the soul, where the soul is bringing them into subjection, saying, no, I'm not ruled by you. You're ruled by me. I'll eat when it's appropriate. I'm not just going to gobble down all my food in front of everyone and then burp. Okay, actually, I think they do that in Japan, but that's a different story. Key terms for today. Tree, flesh, repentance, denial, bondservant. All great words. Tree, a place of decision, a place of judgment. I mentioned this before. Two trees in the garden. Number twos. Boy, if they go to that one tree, they die. Why, why do we go to that one tree? Why do we hang out with the first? There's a second one. It's a tree of life. In all of history, there's two trees. There's that tree in the garden, and then there's the cross. And if you hang out at that first tree with the serpent, you die. But if you repent and believe upon the one who hang, hung, hung, hang, <laughs> hung upon the second tree, you live. It's a higher law. The law of sin and death is you sin, you die. There's a higher law. You believe, you live. And so if we would believe and live, hey, this is the way to go, guys. Flesh, it's the first it's the first operation in your life. And as you come to Christ, one of the first things he's going to start coordinating in you is the understanding of that first instinct. You're going to be like, whoa, I see it. Because this is what the devil's baiting. He's always baiting you to return to a first behavior. And so as a result, you need to remember that you've been set free. And you need to learn to cultivate obedience to the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit will give you power to live this life. But if you don't allow the Holy Spirit to lead, you will find yourself doing things that you shouldn't be doing. At any point in time where you see yourself doing something you shouldn't be doing, just repent and go back to the way you should. Very simple. However, the devil wants to complicate it and have a whole bunch of penance over here. If I were you, I'd just immediately get rid of it, repent, seek his forgiveness, and get back into that groove. It's uh, the illustration I've oftentimes used as a plane. If uh, you get into a plane, no longer are you under the power of the law of gravity. The law of gravity outside of that plane has power over you. And so you could try and leap uh, across the Atlantic Ocean from New York City to London, England, but you couldn't. Uh, the law of gravity prohibits it. But you get into that plane, and suddenly you're functioning after a higher law. It's called the law of aerodynamics. And if you submit to that law and you remain in that law, guess what? You're able to accomplish something that is impossible for a human to accomplish. Outside that plane, did you know there's still the law of gravity? However, you're dead to that law as long as you remain in the plane. It has no power over you. The same is true with the Christian life. The power of sin has no power over you in Christ. But it's still out there. And so as you remain in Christ, you have power to do the impossible. But as you don't remain in Christ, and as you return to first instincts and first behaviors, which are, we're all very susceptible to, by the way, guys, then immediately you begin to realize that the law of gravity or the law of sin actually has power still. So when you recognize that you're flirting with sin, what should you do? Repent and abide in Jesus. So repentance. Boy, I have, I have far more in this message than I probably should have. I, I look back at Nathan and he's like, I understand, but you're doing worse than I do. That's what he was thinking right now. He's like, yes, Eric's going long today. Now that'll justify him to go a little longer sometimes too. I lose a point? That's not the way the point system works. Uh, Nathan's trying to adjust our point system. Uh, I think it's because he knows I'm about three points ahead right now. Repentance. Very simply put, it's a turning from. It is 
a change of mindset towards something. So when you recognize that you, the way you've been living is wrong, it's just an awakening moment. It's like, that's bad now. You actually agree with God. That is wrong. And you change your mind towards it. You turn from it. So if you have been hanging out at the first tree, listening to the serpent, what should you do? Turn. Don't listen to the serpent. Recognize that he's a lying thief. Turn your back on him and believe in the second tree. Start listening to God speak to you from that. Denial. So we are to deny self. Remember that self was up in that head position? We have to step down. In every day, there's a strange itch that we have to stand back up and act like we're stretching. Hey, God, I'm just doing some stretching. And then we move towards that seat where he's sitting. And then we're like, it's a weird propensity that we have to gravitate towards control over our life, which is why we're supposed to pick up our cross daily. That's what we're told to do. We're supposed to deny ourselves. We're not supposed to go after that, but every moment, every time we have that impulse, we say, nope, my life is found in him leading me. So God, I freshly yield, I freshly give, I freshly deny my desires, and I go after yours. Bondservant. A bondservant in scripture is one who has been set free by their master. And so they're free. But because of love for their master, they return to him and their ear is pierced as a statement of lifelong service. This is a picture in the New Testament. John refers to himself as a bondservant. You see, he's one that has an ear for his master. What does that mean? Whatever God asks, the answer's already yes. See, this is the position that God invites us into. Out of love, he sets us free. And then out of love, not out of duty, out of love we return to him and say, I want to serve you. See, Christianity flourishes when it's motivated by love, not just a sense of obligation. We return to him and say, I want you to have my ear. See, this is where we hear. God is going to command you to do things. And up front in your Christian life, you could say, could you tell me what those things are ahead of time and I can make a decision if I should do it? And he says, I'd like you to give me your ear and submit to saying yes to those things even before I ask. Well, that's a trick, isn't it? That's a, that's a whole different wrinkle to it, but that's Christianity. Christianity isn't evaluating along the way if it's a good idea to do it. It's saying, I trust him with my life. And whatever he asks of me, my answer is yes. And that's what it means to be a bondservant. It means to submit your ear and to say ahead of time, it's called the pre-decided yes, Lord. What you desire, my answer is already Yes, Lord. It's essential to give up the first life. So if we could have any summary point, guys, if you're clinging to your first life at any degree, any level, you have to let it go. Repent of that. Put it off. And put your confidence in Jesus Christ. That is the secret to not just transformation in the beginning of your Christian life, but continuation of a vibrant Christian life. To be able to live this out, and I've said this every one of these glossary of the gospel sessions, you have to have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God himself, and he, because of what Christ has done, Christ has made a way for the Holy Spirit to come and live inside of these bodies to enable us to live a life that otherwise would be impossible to live. And so for us, it's imperative that we don't try and live this life with first man's strength but that we repent of that and we say, God, I would need to live by the power of the second. It's the Holy Spirit living in us. Flesh, spirit. It's the second life that works. So this is a great key exercise. In every single one of these, I've given a, it's like a devotional practice. 
And this is possibly one of the most important devotional practices in my life. And it, at first, it doesn't sound like a devotional practice. It sounds like a one-time thing, like surrender. It's like, okay, God, I give up my life, which is very important. You should do it that one time. However, that one time should multiply into every day. When you wake up in the morning, one of the first things I do is I give my life afresh to Christ. I use the word afresh all the time in my Christian life. Lord, I give you control afresh. Because I know it's not the first time, and I know that yesterday I did the same thing. However, I am refreshing my vows. I am repeating them. Maybe it's all for my sake. But I want to go on record that my life today is denied. My life today is submitted. Not just yesterday or 10 years ago when I went down to the front of a church and cried and you know, I, saying, I surrender all. No, my life is his right now. Father, I just ask that you would take this message and drive it deep. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Illuminate it in us and then drive us forward unto action. If there's anyone here that is clinging to a firstborn life, Lord, I pray that they would let it go and they would put it off and take that same grip strength and grab you. Grab the second. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we ask this. Amen. Daily Thunder is a production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training and the Bravehearted Media Group. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and see it once again gain the stride of the Spirit emboldened and brave. The Daily Thunder video stream can be watched live daily at 8.15 a.m. Mountain Time, Monday through Saturday, and 7.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. Please consider booking a stopover at the lovely Ellerslie campus at the foot of the majestic Rocky Mountains for one day, one week, one semester, or for an entire season. We hope to see you someday soon live and in person. Thanks for listening.